am Dr. Judy and welcome to Supercharged Life where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness and fulfillment and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today we're going to talk about the supercharged tip of empathy and taking compassionate action. Of all the soft skills, empathy is the one you'll need the most to be successful, have great relationships, and to live a purposeful, joyful life. Empathy is the ability to step into the shoes of another person, aiming to understand their feelings and perspectives, and to use that understanding to guide your actions. And having the skill helps you to be values-driven, to become an expert at communication, to persuade and motivate those people around you, and to solve problems and handle conflicts effectively. As we experience protests and demonstrations for racial equality across the country, people are asking how they can help, but it might be difficult to know where and how to start. And I'm here to tell you that we can start with working on empathy. Empathy is the root of allyship, and allyship is the building block of transformative leadership. Empathy helps to move you from a passive to active position and to use compassionate action to bring comfort and peace to situations of conflict and injustice. Each of us, especially those who are in positions of privilege in some way, including religion, gender, sexual identity, education, income, or being a member of the dominant ethnicity, we have greater responsibility to be part of the solution, to be vocal, visible, start initiatives, and to create a safe space for others to do the same. And there is no one better to talk about this with than award-winning film producer and human rights activist, Scott Budnick. Scott has been a successful Hollywood producer with hit films like the Hangover franchise and the award-winning Just Mercy. Scott's career took an interesting and purposeful turn when he became inspired to pursue criminal justice reform and through his organization, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, his mission is to end mass incarceration, improve the community, and advocate for policy change. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Dr. Judy. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I want to just launch into some startling statistics. I've heard some of your talks, and I know that you've opened with these statistics before, but I don't think people realize just how bad the problems are in our prison system. So, Right now, and again, all of these statistics are estimates, and you know them even better than me, but the U.S. spends more than $80 billion a year to keep more than 2.3 million people behind bars. And most experts say that this is probably a gross underestimate of what's actually spent. And... It's unfortunate because the, the programs are not really working. The updated statistics from the U.S. Department of Justice says that five out of six state prisoners across 30 states were arrested at least once during the nine years following their release. So we're spending all of this money and people still end up being arrested, convicted, and incarcerated. And I know that you were really shaken by this, but on a personal level, when you had a first visit, I believe in 2004 to Silmar, right? Can you tell yes. me a little bit about how all this started for you? It was definitely the day, the moment that changed my life. And all it took was a decision to just get out of my comfort zone on a Saturday morning and do something interesting. And like, rather than sleep in or go to the beach or go on a hike, a friend of mine asked me if I'd want to be a part of a guest speaker in a creative writing class in juvenile hall. 30 minutes from my house. And it sounded like an interesting uh, departure from the current Saturday morning. Uh, so I drove down to the juvenile hall in the San Fernando Valley and I walked into and the first visual I saw as I was walking into what almost looked like a college campus uh, across this grassy field, I was looking at a nine-year-old in shackles and handcuffs being escorted by an officer. And that visual alone 
was just something that was kind of etched into my memory forever. Um, and then I got into the unit where um, they have the, the, the kids uh, that are being tried as adults, uh, all who committed violent crimes. And so um, I'm going in with some preconceived notions uh, and maybe a little, a little being a little anxious. And I sit down at a table with, I mean, it, they're just kids. They're 14, yeah. 15, 16. They have some tattoos. They have some scowls. But it was clear really quickly that you're just sitting down with kids. And I, I turned to the 15-year-old sitting next to me and just made some small talk before the creative writing class started. And I said, how's your week? How are you doing? And he said, it was a really bad week. I just got sentenced to 300 years to life in prison. And his name was David. And he had a cool little mohawk on the top of his head and a smile. And kind of my jaw dropped. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, I stood next to my friend who shot the victim in the butt. The victim was in and out of the hospital in an hour, uh, no serious injuries. And for standing next to the person uh, with the weapon, uh, they constituted me an aider and a better. And I ended up getting a 300 year to life sentence in prison, which means there's no way to get out of prison other than in a pine box. And it was very clear in that moment. First, as I went around that table and heard from all 12 or so kids that all of them were victims before they were ever victimizers, right? The stories of physical abuse and sexual abuse and witnessing domestic violence and witnessing violence in your neighborhoods at a young age, and many of whom had transitioned from foster care where they had nobody, there was no parent to love them, to the criminal justice system, the juvenile justice system. Um, it was really clear right away, Dr. Judy, that it was it was hurt people hurt people, right? Yeah. Very clearly. But it also was every kid I saw that day was brown and black. And it was clear that if these young people grew up in my house, they would be out on bail. Uh, and because in the United States, you can pay your way out of sitting in jail while you fight your case. And it's all about money not about culpability. And they would have the best lawyer. J David would have had the best lawyer in Los Angeles and would probably get probation and not spend one day in prison for standing next to someone that shot someone in the butt. But because David came from foster care and poverty and didn't have these resources, he was going to prison for 300 years to life. And that just shocked my conscience to the core. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Describe how you felt that day when you were driving home after spending this time. I mean, maybe you had certain preconceived notions, not sure what this was going to look like going to this prison setting for the first time and then meeting these people and having these personal stories and really understanding where they came from. Believe it or not, it was not a feeling of despair. It was actually a feeling of hope. And let me tell you why. That moment and that morning moved me so much. I looked at those kids and I said, listen, this is not the... Oh, last time you're going to see me, I'm actually going to start teaching this creative writing class every week. So you'll see me next week and the week after and the month after, and I'll make this commitment right now. And I'm a man of action, not a man of words. If you guys are doing the hard work 
on working to transform and change and evolve, then I'm going to be in here as long as I last, whether it's 300 years to life or if it's two years. And it it really, I, I was unhappy living in Los Angeles up to that point. I felt like I was trapped in a bubble of the entertainment industry where I was sitting at a restaurant and having a $200 meal and talking about writers and directors and actors, just like everyone else in the business. But five minutes away, kids were killing kids. Kids couldn't figure out their next meal. And we were so disconnected to what was really going on and some of the pain and suffering in the city. And I also realized we had such a platform and connections and a network to really transform lives, but really change the system. And I think what gave me hope is there was a young kid there named Adam who stood up as the topic in that class was forgiveness. And he was reading his paper on forgiveness. He was this tiny little kid. He looked 11 years old and his hands were shaking. It was clear that like he wasn't comfortable reading a paper in front of adults. And it just was like him begging for his mom to forgive him and his grandmother to forgive him. And will he ever be able to redeem himself? And at the end of the class, he looked at me and said, Scott, like you gave me so much hope and inspiration today, but will you promise me that when I get out, I can call you and you'll help me get on my feet. And I said, this is my cell phone number. In six years, he's going to prison for six years for robbery. I said, I don't know where I'm going to be in six years, but I can tell you this number is going to be the same. Here's my number. Here's my email. Call me when you get out. And he did. Six years later, and and, and, and the day driving home that day gave me hope because I knew that there would be many Adams. There'd be many, many Davids to fight for to change laws, but there'll be many Adams who would be coming home and needed a a second chance at life. And at some chance, some instances, a third chance and a fourth chance. Right. And so Adam ended up calling me and we were on pre-production of the hangover. And I said, you have an internship, $12 an hour, show up early, stay late, run circles around people. And he did his call time was six in the morning. He showed up at three 30 in the morning, attitude of gratitude, worked hard at the end of it. His boss said to me, like, I want to bring him on to Iron Man or whatever movie they were going to next. I'm going to put him in the union. And Adam became a union set dresser and went from $12 an hour to, I think, $42 an hour. Now is over $50 an hour. And his four brothers are in the union. So not only have they lifted themselves out of poverty, they've lifted their entire family out of poverty. All of them have children now. Their children are not going to go to prison. Their children are going to go to college or into the unions, right? And so... It was definitely hopeful as I drove home that day. And it was absolutely going on that Saturday morning and just making that choice was the best decision of my life. It's amazing that you were able to make that choice seemingly in one day and in one moment, but actually you've always noticed these disparities and wanted to do something about it even when you were younger. And I know that you grew up in Atlanta and you spent some time as a DJ. And that was when you actually noticed the disparities that were going on in your own neighborhood in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I think I like became quote unquote woke to, to what was going on. I mean, and, and listen, not that I didn't grow up that way, but I mean, we, it was suburban Atlanta. Dad was a doctor. Mom was a teacher. Nice two-story house, nice neighborhood, riding the bikes around. What's crime? What's a gang? Like just not on our radar. But I grew up with parents who were always like the be of service type parents, soup kitchens mm-hmm. on and feeding the homeless on Thanksgiving. And my dad was a doctor and always made me volunteer in the hospital. So I remember as a young, young kid volunteering in like pediatric oncology with kids that were fighting cancer. So I kind of grew up within the, that ethos, but 
I started DJing. Um, I'm, my parents got divorced and I kind of found my own therapy through that divorce through music. And I started out playing the drums and then I bought DJ equipment and started a business. And one of the first kind of gigs I got was the, the local housing projects. Techwood Homes hired me to do their like Halloween carnival and Christmas parties and stuff like that. And I ended up meeting all these kids that were my age, high schoolers, just like me. I was 15, 16 years old at this time, but were living in just absolute poverty. And I would go to their house and see what reality was. And they would come to my house and see what reality was. But like, we didn't think any different about one another, right? Like it, we were 15, 16 years old and we were friends. And I think that's what really kind of what made an indelible mark on me. So when I came to LA and was in the bubble, it just wasn't bringing me joy, right? And it wasn't until that day of walking into Somar where I really found my purpose and LA really became my home. Since that day, you've really championed nonstop for these individuals. And I know that you generally focus a lot on our children, young adults, you know, the age of 18 to 25. What can we do about these individuals, especially although you, of course, work to better our community for everyone. And I want to go back to something that you had said, which is that the commonality with pretty much all of these individuals is trauma. And you took the time to listen to their individual stories. And I'm sure some of them were harder to crack than others. You know, they might have a guard up for longer periods of time before they really let you in and tell you what happened to them. But trauma absolutely leads to a higher incidence of being involved with a criminal justice system. We have statistics like this everywhere that if somebody has had one of these major adverse childhood experiences, if you take that ACE test, which is available easily if you just Google, it results in a range of behaviors punishable by the law. And if somebody has been abused or neglected, then the chances of a juvenile arrest before they turn 18 shoots up by 59%. And it continues into adulthood, actually. So that is why, that is partially why we see these high recidivism rates. But what do you think about the people will say, okay, well, but there's other people who are traumatized and don't go into the criminal system. And are you saying that these people just don't know right from wrong? What would you say to those people who have those ideas about what's going on with these kids? I mean, listen, I think the people that, that I work with know generally right from wrong. Um, but when you I mean, all of us, I, I, I know I listened to gangster rap when I was young, but I was raised in a two-parent household that really, and, and I was nurtured as a child, right? And um, I wasn't going to run out and do the things that I was hearing in music or I was seeing in film at, at that time. But when you're young and maybe you know right from wrong, um, but all of the love that you were expecting to get from home and from those people that you seek that the, the love and admiration for the most wasn't there. And you go to school and the school is 50 kids to a classroom and there's no real interaction with a positive adult in your life. And you're at the same time going through um, physical abuse or sexual abuse or witnessing domestic violence or seeing a friend of yours shot dead in the streets at nine years old, like whatever it is, I've always seen the kind of the hurt people, hurt people thing really kind of materialize into being super true because the one place, and even I've seen, I've heard kids try to go play sports or do arts, et cetera, but ultimately couldn't afford the equipment, couldn't afford the fees, 
and they lost their community. They lost their mentors, which were their coaches. And whenever you're not a child, not finding that love at home or school or sports or whatever it is, there is something that looks like love, a mirage like love that is there in the streets, especially in poor communities where these older men who are driving nice cars and wearing nice shoes and are really looking forward to use you as a young, ignorant person for their personal gain, they're going to show you a lot of things that look a lot like love. And it's going to feel really good. And when you start doing bad things for them, they're going to shower even more love on you. And and just that normal thing a child needs, you're now getting all of that reinforcement for all the wrong stuff. And so like absolutely like from your work and the the work of Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, um, and then just like seeing, seeing firsthand um, this happen over and over and over again, like it is unbelievably clear that the biggest indicator and the biggest need of folks uh, either preventing them from going into the system or when they come home from the system is healing, is therapy, is trauma. Yes. And I actually, when I was a teenager, I was involved with the big brothers, the big sisters of America. And I remember the very first person that I mentored, she was 10 years old and she had already been out of maybe a dozen group homes at that time. Oh my God. And yeah, but I was just a kid too. I think I might've been 14 or 15. So I didn't even know what I was doing. Um, but I was told by the person who had hired me as a volunteer that just show up, Judy, just, just be there. Like if you say you're going to take her out to ice cream or you're going to watch a movie with her. Just, just don't, just don't ditch out on her. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And I did that. I just showed up, but I literally did not think that I made any impact on this child's life until years later, she wrote me a letter and she told me how important it was that every Wednesday, when I said I was going to be there, I was always there. And it just showed me how much you can do for these people who just never had anybody who they thought that they could count on, or they've been disappointed time and time again in their lives. You know, it's so funny you tell that story. I had a very similar incident. Um, I had a kid, a really wonderful kid that had received two life sentences and life without parole. Um, And he came back to juvenile hall and the staff called me and said, Chris seems suicidal. Can you, can you come talk to him? Like he really needs someone positive. And I'm driving over there and I'm like, what do I say to a 16 year old that just received two life without parole sentences in prison? Um, and he's just gotten back from court. And I called the chaplain and I said, what do I do? And he's, and what do I say? And, and he said, it's not about what you do or what you say. It's about the power of presence. Mm. And that stuck with me the entire time. And when Chris got back there and I, and I was with him, we literally sat in silence for five minutes. And it was the most healing silence where he knew that like I had stopped everything and I'd gone there just to sit with him, not to talk, not to see if that I have any answers, but just to sit with him. And it's just been like super clear through this work that Whenever you ask someone like, why, how did you change your life? Like, how did you go from this to that? Right. The answer almost all the time is that there was one person, one adult that came into my life that I truly believed cared, that was consistent and just showed up. And the bar is so low. It's that simple so much of the time to help people drastically transform their lives. It's amazing because when you have that awareness of that fact, and you're just willing to show up, you can do so much for these people who are hurting, as you mentioned, and, and they just need a second chance. They need to know that somebody out there in the world believes in them. And I think that 
even being able to give them that, just that, like you said, that simple presence and just being there it is so crucial. And these kids, as they are doing some of these things that get them into the prison system, they, as you mentioned, do know right from wrong, probably, but it's that mistaken view of what rewards are. You know, this is the gang. This is my family. That's what they're telling me to do. But this is who's believed in me in my entire existence. So I guess I should just do it and not having positive mentors. But also this idea that, you know, when we're kids, we all do stupid things. And that's because our brain's not fully developed. I mean, who can say that they didn't do something completely ridiculous when they were in their teenage years or even in their early 20s, just making terrible decisions that maybe right now as a truly formed adult, you wouldn't make. And and yet, of course, these people are getting life sentences, being treated like adults when they're 15 years old or even younger. And I know that you were instrumental in having this California bill passed, Senate Bill 260, which is called Justice for Juveniles with Adult Prison Sentences. So I know that that was no small feat. You had to kind of pull people from both sides and get everybody to get on board. But tell me a little bit about that process and what it's done for our juveniles that deserve a second chance. Well, it's funny. I uh, I had an incredible woman named Elizabeth Calvin from Human Rights Watch call me early on with a couple of Jesuit priests and say, we've been trying to pass this bill. This was before SB 260. This was SB 9, trying to pass a bill to end life without parole sentences for juveniles. Um, the U.S. is the only country in the world that would sentence a child to die in prison. No other country in the world. And this was a bill that was very simply said after they did 25 years in prison, they could go back into it in front of a judge who could see their transformation and reduce their sentence to 25 years to life from life without parole. And still for seven years, that bill died two votes short in our California legislature. And so I was summoned up there. I brought a bunch of formerly incarcerated uh, young men and women who were in college now with me. And we went into the speaker of the assembly's office and it blew my mind what, what happened. I walk in there and he's got three hangover posters on a table and a Sharpie. <laughs> and there's a photographer <laughs> snapping pictures. And I literally like as one of multiple producers of the hangover, like was a celebrity in there for a moment. Um, so he then said, I know you're not here to talk about the hangover. Let's talk about SB9. Show me where you're at. And I showed him the 12, there were zero Republicans voting for it. And there were 12 Democrats that were voting against it because they wanted to look uh, hard on crime. And he said, I want you to go see. So the, the, the young people I was with told their stories about being now at UCLA and Loyola Marymount, et cetera. And he said, I want you to see these three legislators. I'm gonna call them right now and tell them you're coming. We went down and the, 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 the young people told their stories. And we ended up passing that bill after seven years because of the advocacy of that day. And Governor Brown signed it. But we realized that that affected only 300 people in prison who had life without parole. David, who had 300 years to life and was it was the same sentence, he was going to die in prison just like someone with life without parole, was not affected. So we then ran SB 260 that was going to affect 6,000 people um, in prison and uh, ultimately put together an unbelievable bipartisan coalition, uh, ended up uh, getting tons of Democrats and Republicans to sign on to it, really with the strategy of leading with those who were formerly incarcerated, telling their success stories, and passed the bill, and then ultimately passed three more bills for people that committed their crimes as young adults, 18 to 25, exactly for what you said around the brain science and the prefrontal cortex and the 
the risk taking and the lack of good judgment and decision making, et cetera. And the combination of those bills ended up giving 26,000 people that were sentenced to die in prison as young people now the chance to prove their transformation and go home early to their families. And I was able to go to Ironwood Prison and see David Negretti with his 300 year to life sentence and say, David, congratulations, we just passed SB 260. You now are being reduced from 300 to life to 25 to life. And because David was in there doing college and self-help programs and everything else, before Governor Brown left office, he commuted David's sentence and David actually goes to the parole board this year. Wow, that's amazing. And so yeah. going from a place where he thought he was just going to die in prison to now having a second chance at life and a, a second chance to show that he can be a good, productive and empathetic citizen. So this bill actually does come with some caveats that are important because they actually have to prove that they have transformed, that they have yep. had some positive change. So how are these children being rehabilitated in order to be considered for this lighter sentence? So there's a lot. We have actually, believe it or not, um, I think the California Department of Corrections has really evolved in great ways. There's an incredible man right now named Ralph Diaz, first Latino correction secretary in California, um, running the department. And we've seen over the last decade, um, with all the other correction secretaries, we've seen just rehabilitative programming um, growing in huge ways. There are, uh, uh, I think we have over 10,000 people in prison uh, in California that are full-time college students. Um, and now we have uh, community colleges throughout the entire state, professors every night going into prisons, teaching face-to-face -face college classes and turning a prison into a college campus. We have uh, every self-help program imaginable, high school programs, uh, English as a second language programs, um, vocational classes, tons of different vocational classes, um, definitely a lot around healing, many of which that are actually run by the folks that are incarcerated themselves, um, dealing with trauma, dealing with... Um, uh, obviously, they do AA and NA, but there's actually a program called CGA, which is Criminals and Gang Members Anonymous, which is a looking at crime and gang membership as an addiction itself and a 12-step program in that similar type of way. Um, there are seminary programs that are training people incarcerated, men and women, to be pastors. Um, there's dog training programs where the men inside are living with dogs who are training these dogs to be service dogs for vets coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq. So there is a lot. And really, you see, it's interesting, these young people who go through the parole board and come home because of the level of insight uh, and transformation they have because they've spent 10, 15, 20, 25 years working on themselves. These are actually the lowest recidivating population in the entire state, whereas our normal recidivism rate is 50% for the average person and 70% uh, for young people that come home, seven out of 10 end up going back to prison within three years. The recidivism rate for the lifers, the juvenile lifers that are coming home is under 1%, 0.5% because wow. of the rehabilitation and the transformation. It's amazing to hear those statistics and to understand what that means for our community, what that means for hope for other people who maybe have made some grave mistakes, some of them have, and yet realize I want to be a better person. Yeah. I, I want to say one more thing about those statistics, uh, Dr. Judy. It costs $250,000 a year to incarcerate one juvenile now in California, right? That is 
five times what it would cost to send him to uh, Harvard for a, a full four-year term, right? And we fail those kids seven out of 10 times. Seven out of 10 end up coming at that cost, coming back to prison. And all the research and data, Missouri, believe it or not, spends $30,000 a year or some ridiculously low number <laughs> and has like an under 10% recidivism rate because we know that healing and dealing with trauma and providing folks stable housing and an education and helping them with jobs and having them go to therapy. Those things are so much cheaper than spending $250,000 incarcerating them. And that's why this has become such a bipartisan issue. Like I was just on the phone the other day with the folks from the Koch brothers uh, organization and prison fellowship and the national association of evangelicals and the American conservative union, right? These are um, organizations that that not only recognize the moral horror in ripping people out of their communities and sending them to prison for so much longer than the rest of the world, but also it makes no financial sense whatsoever. And if you're a fiscal conservative or a small government government conservative, like why are we doing this? Right. It truly is something that both sides should be able to get on board with whatever the rationale. And speaking of those statistics, one of the things that really disheartened me was some statistics from the legislative analyst office. And I'm so glad to hear that this is changing. But just a year or two ago, the typical amount of money that was being spent on any kind of rehabilitation programs while somebody is being incarcerated was only 1 40th of the budget. And to me, that sends a really strong message about the belief of what these individuals can and cannot do. Almost like, well, this is how much we should be investing in them as human beings. So how do you think we got here in the first place? Because I know people personally who decided to work in prison systems. They may be guards. They may be handling security. And when they first got into that job, they wanted to do good. You know, they had a lot of positive aspirations for why they got into that system as a staff member. And seeing all of the disparities that keep happening and seeing how people are treated by the legal system, how do you think we got to where we are with this big problem in our prison system? I mean, I think there's a kind of outside the system piece of it, which Obviously, during when kind of gangs became gang violence skyrocketed up, there was an enormous response of looking at suppression and not rehabilitation, right? And so, our prison system in California, we went from nine prisons to 35 prisons in under, I think, a decade. Nine prisons to 35 prisons. I think we went from somewhere around 15,000 people being incarcerated to 175,000 people being incarcerated, right? So our our response was just like the blunt hammer. There was no nuanced. It was just like, let's just keep hammering people and lock them up for as long as possible, right? There was also a now debunked theory about young people. There was an actual, I think, neuroscientist uh, uh, or someone at a university that, that put out this like juvenile super predator theory that mm-hmm. said the kids being born today are being born as super predators. And Mm. that took our juvenile justice system from a system of rehabilitation to now uh, district attorneys being able to direct file kids as young as 13, 14 years old into adult prison systems. And you can imagine what's going to happen to a 13, 14 year old when you send them into an adult system 
with people who are way more sophisticated. And that researcher who led to an exponential increase in kids being sent to the adult system has now apologized and said he was wrong. But the damage he caused early on ruined kids' lives, killed young people, um, and destroyed families and destroyed communities and ripped these kids out of their mother's arms uh, for hundreds of years. And I think also, uh, Dr. Judy, um, we've also created a system, and it's the hardest part about changing the system, where a culture was developed uh, between staff and those incarcerated as us versus them, right? Mm -hmm. It was not when I went to Africa and saw the prison systems in Africa, and when I went to Germany and all over Europe and Sweden and Norway and, and looked at those systems, um, when you talk to the people that work in those systems, they say, the folks incarcerated here are Germans. They're our brothers and sisters. They're members of our community. And we have to rehabilitate them and show them love and belonging and acceptance before we let them back out in the community so they feel they're part of something. When I went to Rwanda, um, I saw these folks that were imprisoned from the genocide who committed horrible atrocities. But the people that were working in the prisons and even the victims uh, of their crimes said they're Rwandans. We want them to come back and be of service and be able to stand on their own two feet. And we want to help them. But in the United States, even uh, two years ago, our, our first uh, part of the penal code in California said the purpose of prison is punishment. Where in Europe and in Africa, the first line of the penal code is the purpose of the prison system is absolutely not punishment at all. It can't be punishment. It has to be rehabilitation and resocialization. So it created a culture in the system where if you are incarcerated and you're going in, you're going to be dehumanized. Mm -hmm. um, they call it green versus blue, the officers versus those who are incarcerated. And um, the culture is really awful. Sometimes you have some really brave officers mm -hmm. who don't worry about the shame and stigma that their, their fellow colleagues are going to cause them and uh, ultimately care about rehabilitation and mentor folks. And they're called inmate huggers and inmate lovers by their own staff, right? And just turning that culture, I think if you asked Ralph Diaz, the secretary, or, or Scott Kernan before him, or Matt Kate before him, or Terry McDonald, like, they'll all tell you, like, the hardest part about changing the system to a system of rehabilitation is taking a culture where you have thousands upon thousands of employees who have been dead set on this mindset. And even in their training academy, in their training academy, in their first days in the system, they're told it's us against them, right? right. And changing that culture is so tough. Yeah, it's just not fearing these individuals, seeing them as who they are as individuals, as people who deserve our hope, deserve encouragement and deserve a second, or as you sometimes have mentioned, a third or a fourth chance at times. But have you met in your experience, somebody who you truly believe that, isn't rehabilitable. You know, somebody who you would say, wow, this is that one out of 10,000 that I guess maybe there's a born evil theory out there that applies yes. to this person. You have. I don't know about the born evil theory. Like I'll <laughs> let much smarter people um, dig into that. But I would say a few things. I mean, one, that moment that happens that inspires change, right? Um, it's one of the most beautiful moments. It's why I do this. When I see someone who is so entrenched in gangs and violence something in their life happens and they become that committed to peace and healing, not only themselves, but mentoring others, right? And when I see that change happen, it's the most beautiful thing. There are some people, whether it be because of deep and severe mental illness, um, 
whether it be because of deep, deep, deep trauma they experience in the first year of their life um, that just do not have the level of empathy or do not. And when I say these folks, I it's honestly probably under 0.1% of the population. Um, so yes, they do exist, but it's also like none of them are very good at hiding anything or trying to pretend something. If someone is angry and violent, they're not sitting there pretending to be not angry and violent to come home. They live their life every day, angry and violent. So it's very clear. And you can ask any of the staff this, every officer that's in a building, every Sergeant, Lieutenant, Captain, I can say, is this person legitimate? And they'll say they're doing the work. They're really doing mm. the work. They see them every day of the week. Right. right. And so um, I have, but it's very few and far between. And I think that's an important thing to point out, you know, because some people, for the reasons that you mentioned, are just not going to be able to be rehabilitated. But there are so few, so few, and we can't treat the mass as if all of them were that way, right? We have to do the reverse. We have to really put rehabilitation first. And it's not easy to walk that walk, and yet you do. So in ARC, your company, you actually employ these individuals when they come out of prison. You have them working for you and you help them to get into jobs and you continue the rehabilitation process and give them that supportive community when they leave so that if they're going back into their former homes where they had all of those traumas happen in the first place, that they still have all of these other supports to help them to succeed. And I know that you were so dedicated to this mission that you actually left the Hollywood business for a while and full heartedly just pursued this mission. But then you came back and you started a production company where you were going to start making more socially conscious films that really educated the public and also our legislators on exactly what's going on. And I just wanted to chat a little bit about your film, Just Mercy, because I thought that, first of all, it was a wonderful film, brilliantly acted. But I also think that it's so great that you are marrying your two passions because as you opened, when we started talking today, being in the elite in Hollywood, having that status, it does get you the attention of legislators. It gets you in the door. It gives you a platform for a powerful message. And it's interesting that even in the movie Just Mercy, which is based on a true story, that what kind of caused them to have a break in the case was when they got to be profiled on 60 Minutes. Yes. And how this person finally got sort of their day Um and people realize, oh my gosh, have we been keeping an innocent man on death row all of this time? So can you talk a little bit about that move and, and making that movie and what it meant to you? Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole journey was fascinating. I mean, I, I think I left the film business after doing Hangover 3 and really after seeing 12 Years a Slave and realized I wanted to focus. I was getting so much joy from the work with folks uh, in and out of prison that I wanted to focus on that. And, and I did for five years. I took a huge pay cut and it was absolutely the best five years of my life um, running ARC and, and, and working with folks who were kind of in these, this kind of huge transformational part of their lives. But what I realized um, in this issue, um, anytime I told the story of one of our ARC members who have changed their life um, in storytelling, it really changed the way people saw folks in the criminal justice system, right? Like, all people know really is what they see on the news every night. And what you see on the news every night is horrifying. So the worst crime in, in the world ends up becoming on the news. And if all I did was get my information from the news, I'd want to lock everyone up and throw away the key because I want my kids to be safe. I want to be safe, et cetera. 
But as you started seeing these incredible stories of transformation, I saw everyone change. If I brought someone into a prison, whether they were a Democrat, a Republican, a person of faith, not a person of faith, law enforcement, victim of crime, when they sat across from human beings, no matter if they thought one thing for 50 years, when they walked out, they thought differently, right? And I realized that being in the film business, we have the platform to market and distribute these stories around the entire world. And um, when we were starting the company, um, I knew I wanted to be as much an impact company, one community as a um, film and television company. And I wanted to run huge campaigns around the release of the film, but I also wanted to make and tell stories. And we have an incredible team that kind of curates all the material that are um, commercial and big. Not, I don't want people to feel like we're, we're trying to get people to take their, take their medicine or eat their vegetables, right? Like, <laughs> how do you tell big commercial stories but that really move people to action, that engender empathy, but then give them a pathway in which to act, right? My pathway was that day visiting Somar Juvenile Hall and how do we give millions of people that pathway and various levels of engagement. Being able to start one community and having one, having Just Mercy, having Just Gil Netter, uh, the producer of the film, and Michael B. Jordan, the other producer who had just set it up at Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers is like my second home. It's where we did the hangover and everyone that works there is like family. And being able to tell the story of Brian Stevenson, who is an incredible kind of global hero of mine. We've done panels together. And, it, and as I was learning about criminal justice, I would always follow Brian's work. And Brian's the guy that Michael B. Jordan plays in the film, the lawyer that ultimately frees Walter McMillan, played by Jamie Foxx. And... The ability to tell that story and work with like Michael B. Jordan and Bree and Jamie and Brian, and then more than anything, to design a campaign mm -hmm. that went alongside the film and moved people to action around it was like just the absolute greatest kickoff uh, to our company. I really found myself being very engrossed in the storytelling of the film. It's such a good story. And it just makes a really important point that Sometimes it's hard for people, as you mentioned, to see this in the news, to read about it. It's hard. It's hard if you really want to be an empathetic individual because sometimes it hurts you. Um, but something about seeing it through entertainment, even though you can still get that message in a very strong way, your defenses are down when you're watching a film, no Absolutely. matter what the topic is. And I think that that's why it's great that you've been able to marry both of those passions and, and being able to do this work and show more people about what's going on and, and what they can do. You know, I want to move into the supercharged tips of the day because we've been talking about empathy and compassionate action a lot. And these are a lot of buzzwords. You know, people hear them. Okay, it's good for you. But what does it really mean to embody it? And you've mentioned a couple of points that were really important. In general, empathy does start when we're very young. And if you've been traumatized since birth, it actually does disrupt your ability to have empathy at a younger age because you don't have those strong positive attachments that you were mentioning that you had and that I had growing up. But the good thing is empathy is something that you can cultivate throughout life. And all of these young adults that you've helped, they're basically shining examples of that, that you can teach them empathy, you can teach them compassionate action, and you can become a better human being if somebody just shows you that they believe in you. So, you know, the first thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of how somebody can start to develop empathy is this idea of cultivating curiosity about people and asking them questions without judgment. 
I think oftentimes we go into an interaction with preconceived notions, but what was it about your approach that led these individuals to want to talk to you? Because I think when we're going into a prison system, these people are used to people judging them already. They probably know that people look at them and think that they're guilty. They think that they're horrible human beings. So how did you talk to them in a way and ask questions in a way that led them to open up and feel not judged by you? I mean, I think really all they are looking for when strangers walk in there is this, is they, the, the number one question is, is this somebody that actually cares? Right. Because so many adults have disappointed them in their lives. Just like you said, Judy, like so many people have said, I'm going to take you for ice cream on Wednesday and then didn't show up. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's just constantly being let down by adults, if not abused by adults, but like definitely let down. Right. And I think being able to show genuinely that I care through nothing other than just being myself. Um, and being an active listener and just caring. I mean, there, there's really, if you care, if you come from that empathetic place, 100%, they're going to gravitate towards you and you become a mentor, teacher, et cetera. And so really it just very simply is coming in, not showing judgment and showing love and caring. Yeah, this idea of radical listening, you know, just going in there without your presuppositions, just listening to their story and accepting their story as it is. I think probably a lot of these individuals are used to trying to prove themselves to everybody. Yep. And so not asking them to do that and just showing that true part of yourself is important and and being authentic in that conversation. I mean, have you ever shared your own vulnerabilities with some of these individuals? I think that that's another route to empathy too, that, you know, it's a give and take. So how do they trust you? Well, you let them know some of the things that you've overcome, your own adversities, your own challenges, and the things that have caused you to have self-doubt sometimes. I mean, do you have those deeper conversations sometimes? And how has that impacted these young individuals who look up to you? Absolutely. All the time. I mean, I, I think... I think asking people to talk about some of the most vulnerable things in their life without being vulnerable yourself um, is not the greatest recipe for success. And obviously, I haven't been through anywhere near uh, what they have. But um, just in talking about my parents' divorce, right, and talking about my family kind of imploding at 15 years old and some of the uh, toughest times in life where you're, when you're in high school and everything is about your identity and um, a sense of belonging and right. And when that's exploding, uh, at that age, how tough it is. Right. And, um, that and other things I always, I always talk about, um, just to open them up. Um, it was funny. We, we went into, um, on just mercy. I took Michael B. Jordan before, uh, um, we started any of the campaign. I took him into the juvenile hall into Silmar to meet the kids. And they were like, really, really scared to meet Michael and like, like starstruck and like they weren't <laughs> being open. Yeah. And we went around the circle and each of them did an introduction and all of the introductions were like, wait a second. Like when I'm there, they go so deep with their introductions if we have guests. But now that Michael's there, they're like, it's like a forward introduction. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> and Michael was in tune enough that when it got to him, he said, guys, like I'm having a really tough day and I'm really happy to be here. Let me tell you what happened to me today and what's going on with my family. And he was got very vulnerable with him. The second he spent those five minutes doing that, everything changed. And that circle just became, we had one kid that 
came out of the closet publicly in that circle for the first time ever. Um, we had another kid who talked about how he'd never said this in public, but that he had attempted suicide twice. Um, and it became so much deep sharing that um, we were able to get people um, uh, set him up with a therapist that was there to talk about some of these things that they exposed in the circle. And both of those kids are doing so, so well, just because Michael B. Jordan decided to sit and be vulnerable as well. Right. And so it definitely yeah. works. Yeah. And I think another piece of building empathy is to really look for those underlying commonalities. I mean, I know you mentioned this too, but you know, some of these people you couldn't imagine growing up with them. You, maybe you did grow up with people like them and, mm -hmm we are so similar more than we are different. So what do you say to individuals who might be a little intimidated, but maybe they want to do more of these things. Maybe they want to actually try to experience some of this for themselves, go into disenfranchised communities and volunteer. What do you tell people who might be a little intimidated by that? How do they look for the underlying commonalities and feel more comfortable in those environments? And I think, I think there's different levels of engagement, right? Like Something, a way to take action is simply maybe like signing a petition mm -hmm. of something you see on Facebook, Instagram, and it's like a very low lift. It's three clicks. And now you've, you've put that forward, you've put that forward and you've helped this campaign move forward. Maybe it's, um, you know what? I don't want to go into a jail or a prison or an immigration detention center or that that's a little much for me right now, but I'd love to mentor someone like how do I do that? And um, I think taking that step at, at ARC, we have mentorship programs. So if you go to arc-ca.org, um, you can sign up to be a mentor and can help someone that's out here trying to navigate school or the workplace. And all it takes to be a mentor is to be willing to tell, give some advice and talk about the career you're in and motivate someone in that career and just teach them what you already know. Like it's such a, you gain so much more for it than what you give. And, and, Maybe it's you You own a business, a small business, or you're an HR person at a large company and giving someone formerly incarcerated the chance um, to prove themselves rather than just disqualifying them in the application period. They're going to work harder, stronger. They're going to have more gratitude. Um, and they're going to need that type of job and mentorship more than anybody. Uh, if it's going to volunteer in the jail or prison or juvenile hall, like looking at the website of your local probation department, uh, or your Department of Family and Children's Services if you want to work with foster youth. Um, and we have a lot of different kind of ways of engagement um, in our, uh, our Represent Justice campaign around Just Mercy. Um, and so if you go to representjustice.org, um, there are ways to get involved there. And some of them are, are about passing laws. Some are about touring institutions and mentoring folks. Um, and then, obviously, I want to be a, a resource for everybody um, and so I'm just honored that you gave me the ability to be here today. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Scott Budnick one, and please feel free to reach out to me as well. Um, but I think just taking that first step, the best day of my life where my life transformed and where I found, found my sense of belonging in Los Angeles was that day that I just took a call from a friend that said, come be a guest speaker in a creative writing class in juvenile hall. And I said, yes. So when that call comes, say yes. Say yes. I'm so glad that we're wrapping up on this very important note because this idea of compassionate action, that that is really what caused you to be hopeful that first day on your drive back from Silmar after having this very harrowing experience in many ways and seeing the realities of what these juveniles were facing. The reason why you felt hopeful, I think, is because not only did you have empathy and you really understood what it was like to be in these kids' shoes, you saw what the action 
needed. You saw what was needed to move on to the next step and to actually do something about it. And the idea of compassionate action is so huge, especially right now during the COVID pandemic, you're meeting needs in a whole new way because you can't go into the prisons and visit them the way that you used to. And I know that you recently actually had a almost two hour Zoom call with Common where you guys were able to provide what you felt like was really needed for this population at this time. Can we chat a little bit about that? Because I thought that was so innovative and so cool. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the greatest thing about Common, um, other than being a like Grammy Award winner and and, <laughs> and uh, Academy Award winner, um, is that he just, he cares so much. We talk about caring, like he cares so much. We did 10 concerts in the prison systems where he came in out of the goodness of his heart for free with his entire band DJ and the biggest kind of sound light staging thing you've ever seen at <laughs> Coachella and did concerts in prisons. Um, and when this happened, I reached out to him and I said, hey, these these folks are so scared. They can't see their families. Visiting's canceled. Volunteers like me are canceled. Religious services are canceled. College classes are canceled. There's no positivity. They're sitting in their cells 24 hours a day and watching the news and seeing all the anxiety uh, provoking things on the news. They think their family members are going to die. They're worried that they're going to catch and it's going to spread like wildfire in a prison, just like the flu does. What can we do to bring hope? And Common's like, let's do a Zoom. And we ended up doing it and bringing a bunch of formerly incarcerated folks uh, onto it to provide inspiration. And then that went so well and we got so much incredible feedback that we've done two more episodes since then. And not only has it gone out to the 130,000 people incarcerated in California, but 16 other state prison systems have reached out. So we're hitting definitely over about 500,000 incarcerated people every time we do this. You're making a real difference, Scott. And I love hearing those stories about common teaching people about mindfulness practices and breath work. Oh, oh, you know, Judy, you don't even understand. Like the end of episode one, he did a one minute breathing episode because, you know, in Common's last book, he just he just put out a book. He was very talk about vulnerable. He talked about sexual abuse as a child that he had never talked about in his life that definitely black men don't often talk about and definitely not rappers. Right. That's not that's not a common theme for, for a rapper. And he really talked about how therapy um, changed his life mm-hmm. um, and talked a lot about mindfulness and breathing. And so we did one minute of breath work at the end of episode one. I got so many collect calls from prison from the guys saying, you got to do more of that. Every time I watch this in my cell, I'm closing my eyes and doing the breath work that the next episode, um, it was all about trauma. The first half hour, we're all formerly incarcerated folks talking about how they deal with healing past traumas and deal with the traumas of being out in the community today. But then the second half hour was Brian McKenzie who is one of the national experts around breathing. He coaches most Olympic athletes around breath work. He did about 10 or 15 minutes of pure breathing. Um, And then Jesse Israel, who did all of the meditation with Oprah uh, on all of her Super Soul Sunday arena concerts. And he was the one that did a meditation every time. He did the last 10 minutes of a meditation. And now 500,000 people are in their cells during coronavirus are closing their eyes 
and doing this breath work. Oh my gosh. It's so great because what you guys are doing is changing the culture. You're changing the conversation and you're giving people tangible tools to better their lives every day and to have hope. And Scott, I am so honored to talk to you today. You are absolutely inspiring and I can't wait to see what you do next. But thank you so much for the difference that you have been making in these individuals' lives and also the lives of their families and communities because this is going to spread like wildfire. What you're doing and the message that you're putting out is going to spread like wildfire in a very positive way as these individuals come out into our society and show us that they do deserve these second chances. And and I want to thank you, Dr. Judy, for just week after week providing hope, inspiration, and real tangible solutions for folks uh, to to improve their lives, to supercharge their lives. You're incredible. And it's just a real honor to be with you today. Thank you so much. I'm really humbled by that. And I appreciate your kindness. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharge Life. And if you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life.